I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, the co-host of this podcast. And I'm Dean Dittloff, the other co-host of this podcast. With our powers combined, we are one host of a podcast. <laughs> All right, you don't need us to tell you that Black Lives Matter is one of the most important <laughs> social movements happening in recent memory. And you also probably don't need us to tell you that a lot of Christians are having a really weird time trying to figure it out. You don't need us to tell you those things, but we're going to tell you them anyways. <laughs> um, Catholics are having an especially weird time with it, as a number of bishops have totally failed to engage the movement with any kind of solidarity or intelligence. <laughs> I'm not Catholic. I don't have any. Uh, <laughs> I don't have to pull any punches here. Bishop Strickland in Texas, for example, recently tweeted this endorsement of a bizarre rant from a far-right Catholic priest who singled out Archbishop Wilton Gregory, who is the first African-American bishop of Washington, D.C., and uh, he denounced Black Lives Matter as a bunch of spooky Marxists out there. Uh, this kind of thing is, I mean, for sure weird, uh, but it's not an isolated example, which is what is particularly troubling about it. Um, but it is a pretty frustrating one. So meanwhile, uh, black Catholics uh, and others have been calling out the bishops uh, failure to affirm Black Lives Matter and, and just uh, all of the weird stuff they've been doing. Yeah, there is a lot going on here, as they say. And in light of all of that, this week on the show, we're joined by Olga Segura, who you can find on Twitter as at Olga M. Segura, uh, S-E-G-U-R-A, uh, to help us figure out what is all going on here. Olga, if you don't know who she is, is a Catholic journalist who's done some really amazing reporting on Black Lives Matter and the Catholic Church for many years now, so she knows what she's talking about. She's a veteran of the beat. Uh, through her journalism, Olga has been telling a really complicated story about the relationship between the movement and the church, and she's also been challenged by the stories herself to uh, change some of her political opinions and how she looks at some of these issues, and we talk about all that on this episode. Also, on Twitter, August uh, suggested that you should take a shot every time she says capitalism or Dolan. And let me tell you, you better keep that dark water handy. All right, let's go to Olga. This week on the show, we're talking with Olga Segura, a very amazing and extremely cool journalist who uh, used to work at America Magazine, now works at National Catholic Reporter, and has been doing all kinds of stuff in between. Uh, Olga, welcome to the show. Could we start off by just having you introduce yourself for our listeners? 
Sure. So first of all, I want to say that was such a cool introduction. I think it's like the best <laughs> intro I've had this year for any like talk that I've done. So I just want to say that. Um, so you said a little bit about me. I just started at NCR last week. And before that, I spent most of the summer working on my book, The Birth of a Movement, Black Lives Matter and the Catholic Church. And before that, like you mentioned, I was at America where I did a lot of podcasting, writing on race in the church, some culture writing and soliciting just other amazing writers. So that's that's me. Cool. That's a great introduction. Um, well, so next year you uh, you are publishing a book that I'm very excited about, actually, uh, with Orbis called The Birth of the Movement, Black Lives Matter in the Catholic Church. And uh, we, we usually start off these conversations just by asking our guests to introduce their work and give like an elevator pitch for their project. So um, could you tell us a little bit about what your book is about? And uh, I don't know, uh, whatever else you might want to tell us about it. Sure, sure. So I guess I'll start by not to use this pun, but sort of where this book was born out of. I, as I mentioned earlier, I had been reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement while at America since 2014. And then in 2018 for the five year anniversary of the movement, which was born in 2012, I wanted, or five or six years after the anniversary, I, I always get the dates confused at this point, but I wanted to do an anniversary piece where I talked to all of the founders, or at least one of them. So I managed to get an interview with Alicia Garza, and that was supposed to kind of be the base of that article. But then it became something much bigger because I started talking to Black Catholic activists who had been involved in the movement. I talked to Black Catholics who were not themselves organizers, but who had very strong opinions about the movement. So I wrote this article that was published last year essentially calling out the church and asking leaders especially to engage with this movement and to take it seriously right because i think i really believe that the I, we can get into this a little more but i think the catholic church has been very silent in recent years and i think they're doing a disservice to the future of the church by not engaging with this movement so i wanted to kind of call them out and essentially tell all catholics more broadly that hey here's this movement that at times is more Christian than our church and our hierarchy, you know? So I wrote that article in 2019 and the book was born out of that. And I initially imagined it to be a sort of, let me help white Catholics and white Christians how to not be racist, right? And then 2020 happened and I completely scrapped that and it, it became more, someone described it as a manifesto because he's a little bit older and not as comfortable with issues like police brutality or police reform, right? So the book at this point is now just this extreme challenge to our leaders and to white Catholics to just get behind issues like not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but to actively engage in police reform, right? To talk about what it means to defund the police from a Catholic perspective. So it became more this, it became less, let me help Catholics not be racist and more the Catholic church is racist and here's how we can be better by being an abolitionist church, right? Or being a church that actively challenges police officers. So that's that's a little bit about the evolution of the book. That's great. I mean, as you were saying, extremely timely. And uh, it's, uh, it's great that it's been able to, the project has been able to adapt to the moment. And uh, I'd be curious to hear more about that process for sure. Um, you've done all this reporting, as you said, for so many years now on how the Catholic Church is or isn't responding to the Black Lives Matter movement. 
And I guess I'm curious to hear more about that. You, you've been alluding to it already about some some provisional conclusions, which is great. But uh, maybe you could start by, do you want to give us the, the good or bad news? You know, what's um, inspiring you or what's disappointing you about that uh, relationship? Sure, sure. What, what's interesting about this question is that depending on what day of the Catholic News Week it is, the answer to that tends to vary. Um, so I think right right now, I'll start with the good news. So what what I've been really inspired and hopeful seeing is just this is kind of the first time where you're seeing white Catholics in, as as individual Catholics, including bishops here and there, who are publicly grappling with their own whiteness and talking about things like, oh, here's what it means to be complicit as a Catholic. Here's what it means to have been super privileged by a capitalist system that's also simultaneously oppressing black and brown people, right? And I think I've even been seeing, or not I think, I've also been really inspired to see a lot of white Catholics who just, I follow on Twitter, who I follow on Instagram, supporting mutual aid funds all across the country, or people who are like, okay, here's this activist that I follow. She just got arrested at this protest. Let me just donate to her Venmo. And I think just seeing a lot more Christians being able to engage with their own complicity and not waiting for the leadership to act and just saying like, look, Black Lives Matter is important and here's what I'm going to do. So that has been super inspiring to watch. But on the other hand, right, because there's disappointing bad news in our church, I think I've been very distraught seeing how bishops seem to have become more, I'm trying to say what, see what the right word is. I think they've become more confident with their bigotry and with their racism. I think that it is an election year in the United States and Donald Trump is feeding into their narcissism, right? He's feeding into their racism and they're falling for it. And I think they're falling for it and they're saying things publicly as alleged church leaders, right? That I'm looking at as a black Catholic and thinking, wow, you do not care about my life, right? We just saw the story of Bishop Strickland who supported this priest, and I don't remember his name, but whatever this latest white racist white priest in the United States, his name is, just supporting him for what he said, right? And just this priest said disparaging comments about Father James Martin. He said disparaging comments about Wilton Gregory, who can publicly align himself with someone who's being racist toward a fellow bishop, right? Who in theory, if you're thinking about the church like a business, he's your coworker, right? He's a colleague in the work that you do. And I think that's been the most disappointing thing, essentially just seeing bishops who are doing a very poor job of disguising their own bigotry. I think before bishops were a little more discreet, and I think 2020, Donald Trump has really made them, has emboldened them in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think that's the saddest thing for me right now. That is sad. Um, I don't want to reduce this to a, a situation where it's like clergy against lay people or something, but... How how do the the lay people that you follow that you uh, that you find inspiring how do they respond to the the clergy who are less inspiring? <laughs> well, I think one thing that I've been seeing a lot of people doing is just calling them out on social media, and I think a lot of people, and for right reasons, I think there's there are pros and cons about to the public shaming. But I think when we're talking about bishops who want to who for most for most of their time in these leadership positions have been quiet about a movement, but then want to release comments like Bishop Daly did out of Washington, I believe, who chastised that Catholic Charities president who said, yeah, I, I'm complicit and I'm guilty of racism as a white Catholic. 
And his comments, he, this bishop had never spoken about Black Lives Matter before, but when he released a statement this year, the rhetoric was very much, oh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't care about abortion or they don't care about crime, uh, gun violence in Chicago. And just seeing Catholics on Twitter call out that language and say, hey, as a leader, here's what the gospel tells us to do and here's what you're not doing. I think that's been really great. I think that bishops and leaders who are failing I think that they deserve to be publicly shamed and seeing that, that, that has been inspiring, but that has also surprised me because I think we weren't seeing that in 2013, right? And in 2020, I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to call Dolan out when he does something really crappy, or I'm going to call out this bishop when he does something, because I think accountability is important. And I think that has been seeing individual Catholics, again, just sort of holding themselves accountable, but also holding the church accountable. That has been extremely surprising to see this year. That's great. Uh, that makes me feel inspired, too. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing it with us. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, maybe we can take a step back and talk a little bit more about your book. In, in the research for your book and in writing it, like what stories have stuck out to you or surprised you? Is there anything that has like really been challenging to you or yourself? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. what um, What's the book shown you so far that's been interesting about Black Lives Matter and the Catholic Church? I think what's been most interesting, because I think I, I went into... I started the book process earlier this year, pre-pandemic, and I had a, the understanding that I had about the church's role in racial justice and the mission and goals of the Black Lives Matter movement. Those, those themselves haven't changed. I think in that regard, I haven't, I haven't found like something hasn't been surprising in that, but I think the, what has been challenging for me is more on a personal level, sort of my own faith life. I went into this thinking, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a very liberal Christian. I'm a very liberal Catholic. I'm an immigrant and all of these, I think I use all of these different ways to identify and I use them to determine what my faith life is going to look like. And I think throughout the book process, I've been really challenged to think, oh no, no, Christianity means you have to actually challenge systems of oppression. And here's what this looks like, right? Here's what this looks like on a day to day. Here's what it looks like to actually care that black lives matter that black lives are worthy on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And this means, this could be as simple as having a conversation about anti-blackness with my own Dominican family or something more on, on a larger scale, calling out bishops. Again, I know I keep returning to bishops, but I think <laughs> the book emboldened me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I think before I would even, even something as, even like politics or even something like capitalism, I've mentioned a few times, like I was not comfortable with that language before the book. And I think the, especially sitting months, weeks at a time with the movement's mission statement and how they call organizers around the world to actively and consistently challenge systems of oppression. I think it helped me to internalize that myself. And I'm much more comfortable than I was a year ago. I think before I was one of those people who was like, you know, capitalism is really, really bad, but nothing else is, is successful. So we should just stick with this. So now I'm like, oh no, no, Capitalism is a legitimate evil, and I hate that we don't have something better, right? So I think the biggest, that would, I think that is the biggest challenge that has happened to me on a very personal level. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, certainly you're speaking our language at this podcast, no doubt about that. <laughs> um, but uh, beyond that, I mean, I'm, I'm always really curious about how those kinds of um, connections get made, and especially in, in people's lives as they engage social movements and that kind of thing. Um what for you has that been like, I guess, to make that sort of transition to, to sort of think through the interconnections between 
capitalist economics and and racism and also you know being a catholic uh how how did those kinds of um things come together or or not for you in the last year or so right right so i think it's come together just to say this in the simplest way i think it's come together in the sense that I now see that Catholicism cannot be separated from anti-capitalist work. And I have internalized that and I feel really comfortable with that because again, when you sit with things like the history of why police departments were made in this country or how white doctors operated pre-medical drugs, you know, to numb the pain when white doctors operated on black women without their consent. When you sit with that kind of history, I think you have no choice but to be like, okay, capitalism has always existed in the United States, right? It's it's a racial, like capitalism was born out of the marginalization and exploitation of black, black and indigenous bodies in this country. And I think sitting with that for weeks at a time was on the one hand comforting because I realized, oh, okay, there's more work to be done. But on the other hand, it was extremely devastating. (laughs) And I think, I don't know if this is just what happens to all, I keep calling myself like a baby communist or socialist because I'm so (laughs) new to this. So I don't know if this is what everyone experienced, but I had a moment of complete, just like anxiety, devastation, where I was like, oh my God, the world is such an awful place and we will never be able to overcome the evils of capitalism, right? So I think after I wrote the book and after I internalized that, then I had to sit with that fact and I was like, wait a minute. So is my faith life not as strong as I thought if I'm Understanding that anti-capitalism work has to be a part of my Christianity, but it's also making me feel so devastated. So I think it's hard to kind of make those connections. I think it's hard, especially as a Black Catholic immigrant who has whose family, you know, I grew up in a lower income neighborhood in the Bronx, and I'm quote unquote what a lot of people like to call ghetto and from the hood, right? And I think seeing firsthand those communities in the middle of a pandemic be so devastated and ignored but it's also like once you kind of lift this veil you can't stop seeing it right so I feel like I went to the point where I was like man I connected all these dots and now I can't even socialize with other people around me because everything I'm like why are we doing this we're making this person money or we're making this person famous meanwhile we're also dying in the streets and being shot you know um so it was hard I think it's not easy to connect those dots. I think it's important work, but I think it's also extremely exhausting. Um, And I'm still like in that exhaustion period. And I'm just like, oh my God, on the one hand, I'm so grateful that I've been sort of enlightened, but I'm also like, oh my God, the world is even more bleaker than I realized it really was. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or if I just rambled on, but I hope there's, there's some kind of answer there. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, just naming those kinds of uh, affects, I think, is very important. Uh, those kind of feelings that emerge out of that stuff is is huge. Um, and it's, yeah, you know, rooting it in, in your own experience and what you're observing is uh, probably the biggest, I, I think, the most compelling, at least, uh, way to understand why these things are, are important. Um, you know, you. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your work um, doing, the, doing the, the task of actually figuring this stuff out and parsing it out as a journalist. So, you know, you spent this time at America and now you're at NCR. Um, what have you noticed about how Catholic media is responding to the current moment and making these connections or not? You know, how are how are we telling this story as it happens? Um, that's a really, really good question, because that's something that I've been thinking a lot about this year as well. I think, first, we can't ignore the fact that most Christian publications, most Catholic publications are predominantly white. And I think that's 
become especially clear or especially jarring in 2020 at a time when black and brown people seem to be having a very specific political conversation. I'm going to say black and brown Catholics seem to be having a very specific political conversation that white Catholics are ignoring. And I think that one has to do a lot with the fact that these publications are predominantly white. And I think that is just, this is just a fact everyone knows. So I think that makes its way clear in the type of work that is done. But two, I also think, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of individuals, and this means editors, this means writers, this means everyone who works at a Catholic publication as an institution, I think people are also figuring out how to talk about their own complicity and their own privilege when they have ignored it for so long. I think the thing for me that's been particularly shocking to see is individuals who have never cared about this movement before forming such specific opinions about the movement. And I think I'm grateful for this because I, I, that's why I've been doing this work for so many years. I want people to engage with this movement, but I think there is still a nuance that is never going to be addressed because people, these institutions are predominantly white, right? So an example of this is it's an election year here in the United States and everyone is talking about, everyone is either saying, as a Catholic, you have to vote for Trump, or as a Catholic, you have to vote for Biden, right? Whereas people in my community are saying, well, I still remember when Biden did this really crappy thing that devastated my community, or I still remember when we were talking about Biden sexually assaulting someone allegedly earlier this summer, right? And I think that those are real criticisms that my communities have, but because we are not the majority at many of these publications, that is a perspective that continues to be ignored. I'm seeing a lot of you know, quote unquote, progressive white Christians who get on social media and shame other people who don't want to vote for Biden. And I'm like, hey, this is a very real concern that black and brown people have. I'm not trying to sway anyone. I'm not trying to say vote or don't vote. But I'm saying, hey, if you want to be a Christian publication that is writing about Black Lives Matter, that wants to align itself with this movement, then it means listening to these voices that go against whatever it is whatever the mainstream progressive Catholic opinion is, you know, and I think that is, that is especially telling. And I think that I'm interested in seeing what, even beyond the election, I'm interested in seeing what 2021, how, how Christian publications, how in particular are going to take the challenges of 2020 and change in the future. So I'm excited to see, I'm interested in seeing how people have internalized the work of this year and what they're going to do coming forward in the next year or two. That will be certainly interesting to see. I hope it goes <laughs> well. <laughs> um, okay, maybe I'm not super hopeful about <laughs> some of these other uh, Chris Christian journalists out there, but but your work has done some really cool stuff um, that I think we can celebrate and be excited about. Um, something that you mentioned earlier that uh, that really rings true to me is just the way that you lift up the voices of Black Catholics who are, yeah, like you said, maybe they're not organizers in Black Lives Matter, but they're still people who have an invested sort of um, you know, they're invested in the movement. Um, you know, they're compelled to go to the streets and join in some capacity. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. How are Black Catholics responding to uh, both Black Lives Matter movement uh, and, and response of their church? Like, what's going on there? I think the best answer to this question is something that uh, historian Shannon D. Williams says often. The Black Lives Matter movement, the, the message at the center of this movement has been something that 
Black Catholics and Black people more broadly have always internalized, right? We've always been a community in the United States in particular. We have always been a community that has been seen as less than since this country was born uh, up to the present day, right? So for us, we've always had to internalize and fight for our existence and our lives and our human dignity and our own lives, right? So we've always known that caring for Black lives is exactly what it means to be pro-life, right? Because my father is Black, right? I'm Black. People in my family are Black. So for me to care about life, it means caring about the Black lives that made me, the Black lives that gave me the space to be the person that I am. So I think Black Catholics have always internalized this movement and grappled with it in a way that has been, let me walk this back a bit because I want to make a distinction. I think Catholics, Black Catholics have always internalized the movement and I think that has never, both privately and publicly, but I do think like we are seeing other individuals, I think a lot more people are being public about that relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement as Black Catholics in 2020. I think even from bishops who have written individual statements, you know, the USCCB, excuse me, the USCCB has yet to release a collective, a collective statement on the movement, but Black bishops have individually, not all of them, obviously, but a handful of them have released statements on the movement since 2013, right? So I think this has been always been something that whether the Black Lives Matter movement has always been something that whether you agree with it or not, Black Catholics and Black people have always been talking about, have always been grappling with that. The only thing that is different in 2020 is that white people are paying attention, right? White people are finally paying attention. So I think to a lot of them, it seems as if Black Catholics are engaging with it for the first time, but it's always something that has been inextricable from our faith lives. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I mean, your reporting bears that out, no doubt about that. Uh, and I mean, it's, it is compelling that the USCCB doesn't feel compelled to release a, a statement on this movement, even amidst the many other things they do feel compelled to speak out about. Um, that's an important thing to take note of. <laughs> uh, this is kind of a weird question to ask because terms like uh, like religious and, and secular can be misleading, but do you think that there's something specific that religious people, or maybe we could even say Catholic people, or Christians broadly have to offer Black Lives Matter as a movement. You know, it's it's not the case that it's a, a, a totally secular movement, right? There's lots of spirituality kind of floating around in it too. But um, so I, I don't mean to play them off as like, <laughs> what, what can these Christians do with this group of secular people? Uh, but you know, wh I guess what I mean is, what does it mean to bring Catholic commitments or Christian commitments into that kind of space or struggle? Right, right. I think that's a that's just a super fascinating question and obviously something that I've been interested in since I've reported on this. I think that Catholic people have a lot to bring to this movement. I think that when you sit with Catholic social teaching or when you sit with Jesus's words in the Gospels, right, I think that you see that the language that this organization, that Black Lives Matter movement, the language that they promote, right? Liberation for Black people means liberation for all people. You know, we want to build a world in which Black people are valued beyond the entertainment business. We want to build a world where everyone is treated with dignity, including the most marginalized, right? So when you sit with that language, that is so very clearly Christian to me. And I think that when Catholics think that this movement doesn't have a space for them, I just want to say, of course this movement has a space for you. These are, there's so, there's so much overlap, right? I think that 
even taking Catholic social teaching, I think we have the language and we have the tools to talk about how to do this social justice work. I think that Catholics know what it is to sit with the most marginalized. You know, Pope Francis says this all the time, go out to the margins and meet people where they are. And I think Catholics who really internalize that and who really, really live out Jesus's call, right? I think that they completely are the are the exact leaders that this movement needs because they know what it is to care about people who have nothing. They know what it is to care about a community that people disregard. And I think that especially especially priests, especially nuns, I think they also have experience, right? They have experience doing this work. Like the Jesuits are so great at taking vows of poverty and working with people all across the world. And I'm like, if you were to take that experience, you could teach so much to these young activists who are getting involved in organizing for the first time. And I think that our church has so much to bring to this movement, but it's so afraid to do that work. And I think until we get over that fear, we will never, the church, and by we, I mean the institutional American church, I think until we get over that fear, the church is never going to be on the right side of history because we need to restructure this idea that the movement and Christianity, Catholicism in particular, are so incompatible, right? Because the reality is that they feed into each other and they complement each other so well. And I just wish that our leaders in particular would realize that. And right, even if it were a 500 word press release, I would welcome the bishops to actually publicly say something about this, you know, because they're so individually, so many of them are committed to just denigrating the movement instead of actually telling Catholics, hey, here is why the Black Lives Matter is super Christ-like and here's why you should get involved with it, you know? So I think that our church has so, so much to offer if it actually wants to do the work. Yeah, I think so too. Um, that's a, really, a great way to frame it. A, a minute ago, you said that um, that the church is, has some kind of like fear about joining the movement or, or, or feeding into it in some ways, right? Um, I don't know. Could you talk a little bit more about that fear? Like, what do you think is going on there? What's, uh, what, what is the fear? I think the fear comes from, there are two things that are happening here. I think one, there's just most of our bishops. And I want to just be clear when I say these criticisms, I'm specifically calling out the bishops because they are supposed to be teaching us how to think about these issues and guiding us, et cetera. I think that the bishops, the body of bishops in the United States, which are made of predominantly white men who are over, I want to say 50, 55, I don't know the exact details, but I know that they are older white men. I think that there is a genuine fear of engaging with an experience that is so different from their own, right? I think we saw this with the 2016 election. Donald Trump fed into this, this kind of, this fear that white Americans have that when social justice movements are rising in the United States, it's because people want to erase white identity and people want to erase white people and the white experience. But that's not the reality, right? Because we, <laughs> that is impossible to do. But I think the bishops have that same fear. I think the bishops are afraid to challenge themselves to step outside of their white bubble and actually meet people on the margins. And I think in particular, they are afraid to do that with a movement that was formed by three black women, two of whom identify as queer, and I think that there is a very misogynistic tone and behavior that bishops take when it comes to engaging with Black women. I think they disregard the work that these women do. And I think whenever they see, oh, Alicia Garza 
Opal Tometi, Patrice Cullors, right? The minute they see those names, they just jump to, oh, they're Marxist, right? Or they're these women who support anti, who support violence against police officers and don't actually do the work of engaging with the movement. So I think one, it's it's this fear of losing their their privilege. Honestly, it's a fear of losing the power that they have in the United States. And two, it's just they disregard anything that is led by black women. Yeah, I think that makes sense. This, I guess, kind of plays into the next question. You've brought up Donald Trump a, a few times. You've talked about the ways that uh, Donald Trump and the sort of rise of um, fascism in the United States has really emboldened some Catholic voices. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, there's a, a growing right wing contingent within the Catholic community. Um, I don't think that's surprising to anyone on Twitter these days. Uh, you can could could you tell us a little bit more about like what's going on there? Um, what's behind this huge surge in reactionary politics? Is it just Donald Trump? Is there something else to the story? Um, what, what's happening there? Um, I think a lot of it obviously is Donald Trump. Donald Trump knows how to. He's very good at feeding into these illogical fears that white men and women in the United States have, um, and not just he feeds into the both the logical and the very rational fears that a lot of people, in particular working class white people, have in the middle of the pandemic. I think he sees those fears and he feeds into it, but he also fears into the idea that white people have again, as I mentioned earlier, that you know racial justice or racial equity means the means abolishing any kind of white culture or white identity. That is not the case. But again, I think one, on the one hand, Donald Trump, he's obviously, I think, behind every awful thing that happens in the United States. Um, but I also think that a lot of people have just been emboldened when it comes to their own racism and bigotry. I think that there have always been these awful racist people in our church. But I think that prior to 2016, they were private about it. And I think, again, when you see a president who's saying such racist, xenophobic things publicly every day or on Twitter, I think that it makes a lot of people feel like, oh, okay, well, if my president can say this, then I can say it too. And I think a lot of white Catholics are just showing their true colors. I think we see the church militant types, right? We see that these people have always existed, these really right-wing extremists have always existed. Trump has just given them, like like I mentioned, a lot of bishops feel emboldened to show their true racist colors. You have the president of the free world, essentially, telling them that it is okay to fear Black people, that it is okay to shoot protesters, that it is okay to, quote-unquote, fear illegal immigrants or illegal aliens. He is feeding into that, and he is empowering them to be public about these ideas in the same way that we saw the first president I voted for was Barack Obama. And I was 18, 19 at the time and voting for him at that young age, right? This was before my radicalization at that age. I was very comfortable using the language that Barack Obama was saying on television because I thought, here's my president, right? And I'm 19 and I'm super susceptible to the world around me. And I think Trump is feeding into that. In, and it's not just older Catholics, right? We're seeing a lot of young people who go on TikTok, right? Every, I feel like every week I see some young person saying some racist, outrageous thing on TikTok. And I think it's not so much that there's a surge in sort of reactionary politics and Catholicism. I think it's more that people have courage now. I think people feel comfortable associating their 
Christianity with bigotry on a public level. And I think, again, that has to do with Trump and has to do with the fact that when our church leaders don't tell us otherwise, again, I think that's also a problem. I think there's Trump saying these awful things and then there's our leaders collectively staying silent. But individual leaders like New York City's finest, Cardinal Dolan, meeting with Trump and telling us that, you know, he's a Christian and we should accompany him. I think that when those two things are happening in the middle of a global pandemic where black and brown people are dying, where police officers are beating people up in the streets or shooting people down, I think that when you see those two things happening, I think people feel good about being racist, right? Because they say, oh, if this is the status quo, the public status quo from church leaders, why wouldn't I show that? So I think it's less a surge and more just like, oh, okay, finally, I can be my true racist self for the first time in my Catholic community. Uh, referring to uh, Cardinal Dolan as New York City's finest is uh, a very good line. So thanks for that. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you guys appreciate that. That's another thing that 2020 has allowed me to do, just publicly call out uh, my own bishop. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, um, good on you for that. It's not easy to do, I imagine, especially in New York City. Um, you know, one thing that we uh, talk about a lot in this podcast is how um, Christianity sort of creates these really weird forms of logic that allow people to be racist or like gives them, I don't know, strange commitments and tools that that can allow them to be resistant uh, to, to bad stuff, but also sort of enables bad stuff, too. And I'm really curious about what your thoughts are on that. You know, there, there's a handful of bishops who um, have gone out of their way to, as you say, criticize Black Lives Matter by name or criticize one thing or another, whatever, toppling statues, et cetera, whatever it might be. Um, what what kind of uh, particular objections to Black Lives Matter do you think emerge from Catholic thinking? You know, what, what roadblocks are there that stop people from entering into dialogue with that movement? I mean, you mentioned like the loss of privilege, which is all absolutely true. Um, but any kind of like rhetoric or language that you see kind of, uh, you know, giving people maybe mental roadblocks from from that? Oh, absolutely. I think the fact that, again, three Black women at the center of this movement, I think the fact that they so openly are critical of capitalism and that they so openly call on organizers to sit with that kind of rhetoric, right? Because to sit with what it means to be critical of systems of oppression and what it means to not just care about money, but to care about the marginalized and care about allocating resources more equitably. I think that people see that language not just because you can see that on the Black Lives Matter movement website, but you also, these are organizers who give speeches, who talk publicly, who tweet, and who use this kind of language. And I think people see that immediately and are like, okay, well, these women are Marxists. So we can't, as Catholics, we can't engage with anyone who is critical of capitalism. And I'm like, okay, Pope Francis is critical of capitalism. Pope Francis calls on us to think about consumerism and to think about the effects that it has, not just in the United States, but around the world. And I think that that is one of the that is one of the main <laughs> objections that I often see. Or another one is, you know, these women being so critical of police departments and calling on people to defund police departments or to abolish the police. Right? I have heard people who say, again, Cardinal Dolan goes publicly and makes comments, and I'm I'm, I'm referring to him because he publicly wrote an article, but because I've seen this language a lot. He, go, he wrote that piece in the Post earlier this summer where he glorified police officers, right? And I think that when Catholics see that, 
they think, okay, well, police officers are, are just like Jesus, right? There are these moral institutions that we have to protect at all costs because they care about our human dignity. They care about pro-life issues. In reality, that's not necessarily the case, right? But again, when they see leaders who say the rhetoric of this movement is dangerous because they're violent, because they hate police officers, because they want babies to be killed in the womb because they are pro-choice, I think that creates the unwillingness that people have. Because I think there are people who are the right wing, we, we know the types, right? There are people online, there are commentators who are just extremists and who make absolutely no sense whatsoever. But then there are Catholics who genuinely don't understand what this movement, don't understand the movement. They don't understand what it is to talk about abolishing the police, right? They don't know what it is to talk about rights for transgender men and women. They don't know how to talk about capitalism, again. But then they don't know how to talk about these things. But then our bishops are still opining on this. Our bishops are still saying, well, you know, we're approaching an election and anyone who isn't against abortion is evil. That continues to create confusion and continues to fuel these these roadblocks, like the word you use, continues to fuel these roadblocks that Catholics, that white Catholics in particular already have. And I think that that makes it so difficult for people who could be swayed to engage with this movement. But if all they're seeing are bishops who are, and I hate, at this point, I hate using this word, but fake news, right? There's so much misinformation that is being spread, not just by publications, but also by the bishops themselves. And I think that continues to create this lack of understanding about what social movements more broadly, what they're doing in the United States. And I think that 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 is the biggest roadblock. I think until bishops, again, in particular, I'm very critical of bishops, but I think until they actively start to help Catholics, in particular white Catholics who are like conservative, but still understanding that there's a problem, I think until bishops try to talk to them and try to help guide them, we're going to continue to see these obstacles and people just not willing to engage with this movement. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, in an article that you wrote for America not too long ago, you actually put this point here in, in a really nice way. Um, you wrote, to be a merciful church, we must rebuke the violence that took the lives of Ms. Taylor, Mr. Floyd, and so many others. This means courageously and radically transforming our church into an active force for justice and a solace when the world seems to tell our people that we do not matter. Um, I think, I mean, I think that's exactly what you're talking about though, right? That there, on the one hand, there's the church as it is with these sort of right-wing elements that are not willing to listen, not willing to engage. But um, there's a church that could be in, in the church that has existed in some, in some cases too. So yeah, I, I don't know, like what, what's the way forward, do you think, for the Catholic lay people who are um, interested in Black Lives Matter and the clergy who advocate for racial justice and the, those who that don't? You know, what's the way forward for um, the church in this moment? Yeah, so I think I'll answer this a variety of ways, if that's okay. Um, I think for lay people, they need to keep doing the work that they've been doing in 2020. I think I mentioned earlier, we've seen people who are donating to mutual aid funds, who are donating to individual organizers, who are publicly shaming bishops online. I think that all of that is important, and I think they have to continue doing that. And I think that the bishops as a whole also have to just actually release a statement on this movement. I think the longer they wait to do so, the more tone deaf they come off. So I think lay people can continue to do the work, bishops at the bare minimum need to 
actually guide people on how to think about this movement, how to get involved and how to, how to actually accompany an organization that doesn't necessarily align 100% with Catholicism, right? But more broadly, I think that beyond this, we need to, the church, and I'm, and I'm including the hierarchy, including bishops, priests, and lay white Catholics, I think people need to really challenge themselves to think about what it means to be in solidarity with marginalized communities. I think there's a lot of performative allyship that's really great, and I think it's a wonderful first step, but true solidarity also means relinquishing your power. And I think until we start centering and uplifting marginalized communities fully, and this means stepping aside and letting people step into editorial spaces or letting bishops or letting priests step into black and brown priests step into positions of leadership at the USCCB or all across the country. It means actual white sacrifice, right? It's not just, oh, I'm going to donate and write about this movement. It also means asking yourself whether you are an institution, whether you are an individual. It means asking yourself, how can I step aside and let someone else be uplifted? How can I step aside and let someone who isn't white be centered? And I think that that is a conversation that many people are not ready to have. And I think that in order for us to be, for the church, for the Catholic church to be seen as an actual ally in the struggle for racial justice, I think it requires people just stepping aside and letting other people lead. And I think that begins, people have to start having those conversations, whether you are a whether you are a predominantly white Christian publication or whether you are at the USCCB, right? It means asking yourself, how can I step aside and uplift a marginalized community? How can I step aside and let other people's voices be truly centered? So that's what I got. Thanks. That's great. Uh, and I mean, important for us uh, as to uh, white hosts of this podcast, no doubt to be reflecting on ourselves. So um, it's good to have that reminder and challenge. Um, in light of that, maybe one question to ask as we come to the end here is, uh, who are some of the, the voices in um, Black Catholic communities who you find are really uh, saying an important word in this moment or doing important work? You mentioned Shanine D. Williams earlier, a really great historian. You wrote this fantastic uh, profile of um, Father Massengale recently. Um, do you want to say anything about them or, or other people that you've just found really, you know, helpful or, or useful in, in that and kind of centering different sorts of voices in these conversations? Oh, for sure. So along with Shannon and Brian, I think Dwayne David Paul, I think you guys are probably familiar with him as other radical, brilliant thinkers on social media. Dwayne David Paul is a Black Catholic and he's brilliant. He's one of the people who has really helped me to challenge myself and to actually sit with what it means to say, okay, I'm again, I'm an anti-capitalist. What is, what does socialism actually mean? Right. What does this mean for Christianity? And I think he's someone who is doing really great work at the collaborative center for justice, but he's also a really important thinker and a really, really bright writer who really, really can challenge Catholics to step outside of themselves. And there's also Tia Noel Pratt, who's a sociologist and just also another amazing thinker, another amazing Black Catholic. She, earlier this summer, created the Black Catholic Syllabus, which is a really, really great resource if you guys haven't checked it out or if your listeners want to check it out. So I think those are just off the top of my mind, two really great people to follow who are doing the work and showing Catholics what it means to think about the struggle for liberation. 
Uh, that's great. Um, I do want to pose one one more final question. This is sort of off book because we've uh, <laughs> I haven't uh, we haven't written this down. But, you know, one thing that I think I keeps um, coming to mind as I've been listening to you talk is uh, thinking through strategies for like, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say agitating in the church, but that is what I mean. <laughs> like, um, you know, you've mentioned like uh, calling out bishops and, and that sort of thing. Um, what are like, what do you think is sort of a, a promising strategy for doing that? Right. Like, uh, like what, what's an effective way of really showing the, the church hierarchy and, and other Catholics too, that like, you know, we like the laity and other people in the church mean business when it comes to racial justice, you know, like we, we don't, we're not going to settle for people just not engaging it or waiting for it to go away. Like what strategies maybe from, from history or that you're seeing are things that you just think, yeah, more people were doing this or thinking hard about this. We'd, we'd be better off. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great question. I think one of the strategies, I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I think that I'm a huge fan of social media. It, let me rephrase that. I'm a huge fan of Twitter. Um, and I know that there are pros and cons to it, but I think Twitter is a wonderful strategy for people, not just for the public shaming, but just it's a wonderful resource to help people learn about the church in a really real day-to-day -day way. And I think that there are so many theologians, there are so many organizers and just poets and writers who I've been following for years who help me to think about what it means to challenge the church and what it means to challenge myself. So I think that that's a, if people who have the privilege and who have the resources to be able to be online, I think it's a wonderful strategy, not just because you can challenge other people, especially white, white people, but I think also it's a wonderful way to, to learn, right? I think you can learn from people who have been doing this work and you can also encounter other strategies like i love when people write letters i love when people write statements i know not everyone is a fan but i think one thing that we've been seeing this summer is white catholics and this means professors theologians um sociologists historians writers etc you're seeing so many people write public letters calling out bishops and demanding that bishops be more vocal on immigration on what it means to be pro-life, on racism. And I think that is important because in the future, when we look back at 2020, and when we look back at whatever year, but in particular 2020, we are going to have actual evidence of what people were doing. We're gonna see that there are archives of people who wrote letters, people who marched in the street, people who publicly called out bishops, or people who had something as simple as a, a thread where they were like, hey, here's, here's how Black Lives Matter and the church go hand in hand, right? Like, we are going to look back and see that people have been doing the work while bishops have been silent. And I think that those strategies often might not feel like they're enough right now, because I think often, you know, you see a letter and it's like, sign this petition and no one shares it, no one signs it. But I think for historical purposes, especially in the future, we're going to have so much evidence of the work that people did. That's why I'm always in favor of people using platforms like Twitter and people using even their own blog sites. I just love the power of social media to challenge and to get information out there because it provides a historical timeline for us to look back on. And I think that's always the strategy that I suggest people do if, if, if they're comfortable. Because I also know Twitter is a really evil place and I often have to take breaks because Catholic Twitter can be the ugliest place online sometimes. But I think it's just social media and just blogging and newsletters and anything where you can share information and provide social commentary about the church and about social justice, I think is such an amazing strategy because 
that is how you get people thinking. That is how you get people thinking. That's how you spark people to go out into the street and march. And that's how you get people to actually want to accompany Catholics who are not like them. And I think, again, it's a struggle toward liberation. It's going to take time. And I think people get so caught up in having to have results now that they disregard social media or writing, et cetera, as any kind of worthy strategies to use in the fight for racial justice. But I think they're important for a variety of reasons. And I think those are two of the strategies that I love to encourage people to take part in if they can. That's great. Um, I think that's a really good word and definitely elevates the uh, the importance of our podcast, maybe. <laughs> as well <laughs> we're out here we're just posting it's we're posting for social justice that's what we're doing um yeah there you go <laughs> yeah well uh i think that you uh you and your journalism has probably done it a little bit better than us um and uh where can people find uh your writing these days if you uh if you want to plug some of that that'd be great oh sure so people can find my writing my ranting my calling out bishops whatever they're into on my twitter page which is at Olga M. Segura, and that has details about when my book is coming out and where my latest posts are coming out. So I think my Twitter. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your work. It's been really fascinating um, and enlightening. So uh, you heard it here, folks. Uh, go follow Olga and read what she's writing. And uh, we'll be on the lookout for that Orvis book uh, next year. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, First of all, you should definitely follow Olga at Olga M. Segura on Twitter uh, and be on the lookout for her book through Orbis Press. You can also support us and this very good podcast that you definitely did listen to and did enjoy and did love at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can email us at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Oh, boy. You can find us lots of other places, too, I'm sure. We have some merchandise at redbubble.com. You can just search The Magnificast. And our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon.